Welcome to Healthy Dialogue, the podcast of the Alliance of Community Health Plans. Here's your host, ACHB CEO, Cece Connolly. We're going to devote today's episode to some really good conversations about primary care. And we have two terrific guests who know that space really well. But it's important to acknowledge first that those two simple words, primary care, mean different things in different types of settings and situations. There's fee-for-service primary care that dominates the current system and often results in excessive referrals and the selling of unnecessary services. There's the staff model and payer-provider approaches in which doctors are paid not by doing stuff, but by focusing on health. And then there's the outcome-based primary care model in Medicare Advantage that has not only been more stable during the pandemic, but is producing better results for a rapidly growing segment of our seniors. In MA plans, for instance, screening rates are higher for things such as breast cancer and colorectal cancer. Chronic conditions are better controlled. Prescription drug reviews happen at a higher rate. And those things are happening in the primary care environment, not at the specialty or hospital levels, because primary care physicians and care teams in Medicare Advantage are incentivized by the health of the patient. You know, it's kind of a shame that the MA model is still more the exception than the rule. But that's why all of us at ACHP are so passionate about Medicare Advantage. Our guests today are passionate about primary care. Let's get to it. It's my pleasure to welcome Anne Greiner to Healthy Dialogue today. Anne is president and CEO of the Primary Care Collaborative, where she's advancing a more effective healthcare system built on a strong foundation of primary care. Anne knows a thing or two about high quality, robust primary care, and we are so glad she could join us. Anne, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks so much, Cece, for having me. And this is such an important topic. I keep coming back to the word fundamental whenever I think about primary care. And I want to start, obviously, the the COVID-19 experience is, is something we've got to discuss. But before we do, just a little bit of context setting here, Anne. If I'm not mistaken, the United States today is spending, oh, five, seven percent of our total healthcare dollars on primary care. I think that's about half of other industrialized nation. Do I have the numbers right? And what's going on there? You do. And whenever I talk about this, I think people are really stunned to realize that the spending is so low and that we as a country have consistently underinvested in primary care. And in fact, the numbers are not going in the right direction. Recent data from HCCI shows that primary care visits are down about 2%, as is primary care spending. So we're spending, as a country, more money on hospitalizations, 
and pharmaceuticals than we are in primary care. And yet what we all want is health. We want, you know, to prevent disease and we want to help restore people to health and help them manage their chronic conditions. But that's not what our budget looks like. It's not what we're prioritizing in terms of spending. So just to put a really fine point on this, because you drew the comparison to hospital spending, for instance, or pharmaceutical spending, why in your view, and I think there's probably data as well, not just your opinion, but data that suggests that really maybe the dollars are better invested, more wisely invested in primary care. Can you can you kind of lay that out for our listeners, especially from the perspective of health? Sure. We know from data that if we have a higher primary care density per 100,000 patients, we're actually going to increase life expectancy pretty remarkably. A study that came out of Harvard Center for Primary Care, a number of researchers there showed that you'd actually increase life expectancy by 52 days, which is very similar to smoking cessation or other kinds of things that we know will increase patients' health. So we need to make sure that everybody is getting primary care visits. And as I said earlier, those are falling. We need to make sure that people have access to primary care. And unfortunately, the number of primary care physicians, we don't have that data for nurse practitioners and PAs, is falling. If we want to restore the health of our population and make sure that life expectancy grows as it has not been over the last number of years, remarkable in our nation's history that we've actually been seeing a decline. And clearly this year, we'll see another decline in large part due to COVID. And so you mentioned the COVID pandemic, and certainly we saw some pretty troubling headlines about how it was impacting not only, obviously, our fellow citizens, but specifically primary care practices. Tell a little bit why we have witnessed primary care practices on the edge of extinction in some cases. Well, I think it really comes back to a payment system that relies on face-to-face visits during a pandemic, you know, and obviously that is not a recipe that works. In fact, I'd call it an epic failure. The practices that had global capitation, comprehensive payment, PMPM, whatever you want to call it, were better able to deal with the storm of COVID because they had some advanced payments that could help them weather the drop in patient volume as they quickly redesigned their practices and brought telehealth and telemedicine on online. So it really is the payment system. And also because we have underinvested in primary care, it's not like these practices had deep reservoirs of reserves that they could use to ride out the storm. Pretty quickly, you saw primary care laying people off or reducing their salaries and scrambling to make payroll to pay their rent. So I want to ask a little bit about this notion of your care team, maybe your uh, team-based approach to healthcare. 
And when you think especially about primary care, maybe conditions such as chronic conditions, how would you like to see primary care evolve toward that team-based approach? Well, we are all about the team, and I think it relates also to you know the previous topic, which is how we pay. If we have a payment system where it's kind of like a subscription and you get a monthly payment to take care of patients and you get that in advance, then you're better able to anticipate what your revenue will be on a given month and to build out a team that could, you know, potentially include a health coach and help people make the kinds of changes to diet and exercise that they need to make to help them better manage their chronic condition. You also might bring in a behavioral health specialist. We've seen this pre-COVID, but in COVID, there's a lot of interest in people are really having a number of challenges on the mental health front. So if you could have a behavioral health specialist on that team, that would certainly help. And then I think a lot about your members, Cece, who have such deep and important connections to the community. You know, if you had a team that was working with a primary care physician or nurse practitioner or PA that had a community health worker, they could really help patients better connect to the community if they needed services from the community to really round out what they need to restore themselves to health and remain healthy. Well, and indeed, even though we didn't practice that question, and um, thank you for that mention, because yes, a number of our ACHP community health plan members have in fact been doing that. And as you point out, these non-physician members of the team are so critical in terms of health, but also affordability, which which really matters. If you if you can't afford the health care, you you don't have access, you know? So to me it, it does just seem to go together so nicely. I don't know if you'll find this to be a controversial question or not, but I am curious, what do you think about maybe offering rewards to patients to start with their primary care doctor? I don't know if it's a coupon or a discount or a little incentive or something. What do you think about that? Interesting. Well, I think we have to figure out how to change our current culture around how we access care. I don't know about you, Cece, but I've got your friends who moved to the States and they basically say, where is primary care? You know, in my home country, they're the person I go to first. They answer all my questions. They help me navigate the system. They help explain when I get contradictory reports from different specialists. So, you know, I think it is critical to figure out how do we help patients really strengthen that relationship. It may be these kinds of incentives that you talked about, but I think before we get there, I think we should also really think about benefit design. And if there, you know, is a copay before you avail yourself of primary care services or a high deductible, budgets are very tight and people may just decide that, oh, they'll put that off because there is that financial barrier. And a number of employers, I'm thinking about Covered California, for example, um, and a number of large corporations have just said, no copays, no deductibles for primary care. We don't want to have any financial barriers. That's a great point. And there is so much that the private sector can do to innovate around 
design, you know, benefit design, as you say. And I think, again, we've seen some of the best creativity during this pandemic, waving a lot of copays around telehealth, for instance, behavioral health, primary care, as you mentioned. So I'm really kind of getting smart about that. Related to that, Anne, are there federal policies or payment reforms that would give a boost to primary care in the coming years? Well, you mentioned telehealth policy, and I think that CMS was really first out of the gate, you know, on changing a number of policies that helped to support virtual visits and even telephonic visits. And so, to continue those, and I think there is a proposal that those will be continued, is really important because, you know, I think until we have a vaccine, we're going to probably have ebbs and flows of this virus where it will make sense to see, you know, your primary care clinician in person and other times where it won't. But apart from that, I think, you know, some patients really like having virtual visits. They're super convenient. They really can work very well for for many things. So definitely on the telehealth, telephonic front, I think also we should really be encouraging this movement to prospective payment, really ramp up what CMMI is doing and figure out how we can get more practices involved in taking on risk-based payments, support them so that they can do that with a net, but help them move in that direction. And then finally, we've been doing a lot of work with states to help them understand what are they paying for in terms of healthcare to be reporting on their investment levels across different sectors, including primary care. And often when they see that data, and primary care is so undervalued, you know, they say, hey, wait a sec, this doesn't really reflect what we're trying to achieve for the health of our population. We really need to shift payment towards primary care and keep people healthier. So we very much applaud state efforts to set targets for primary care investment. And heck, you know, maybe the federal government thinks about that for Medicare Advantage plans. What are they spending on primary care and can they invest? They are spending more than, than most and might they invest more to really help support Medicare beneficiaries, provide all the care they need that could be done in a primary care setting. Well, what a pleasure it has been. Anne Greiner, thank you for joining us on Healthy Dialogue. Thanks so much for having me. It was really a wonderful treat. And we'll be back with more of ACHP's Healthy Dialogue after a quick message from our sponsor. Rising costs, new technology, and higher consumer expectations are forcing the healthcare industry to evolve toward a value-based, patient-focused system. Change Healthcare Consulting helps clients adapt to this new landscape. Their reality-based consulting services help healthcare organizations innovate, solve problems, and optimize business performance. Ranked by KLAS as the number one payer consultancy, Change Healthcare is a recognized industry leader. Whether you're working to become compliant with the new interoperability and patient access rule, entering Medicare Advantage for the first time, or engaging on an enterprise system implementation, Change can help. For more information, go to changehealthcare.com or simply Google Change Healthcare Consulting.
today, we traveled to Madison to speak to my friend, Dr. Mark Huth, CEO of Group Health Cooperative of South Central Wisconsin. Under Mark's steady leadership, GHC has implemented innovative primary care services that enhance access and value, all while leading the country in national quality ratings. Mark, we are so excited to be joining you for today's Healthy Dialogue. Thank you, Cece. It's great to see you. It is so nice to see you, too, after so much quarantine. Let's jump right into this, Mark, because Group Health Cooperative has got a really interesting window on primary care. Do you want to just set the stage for our listeners a little bit that might know you as a plan, but not appreciate all that you do? Well, primary care for us is really the at the heart of everything we do. It is more than just being a gatekeeper or an entryway into healthcare. It really is the home for healthcare. And we have followed that as far down that road as we possibly can. And one of the things that I love about the, the group here is people identify Group Health Cooperative as their true medical home. No matter where else they may need to go to get care or to have imaging done or what hospital they may be in, when they think about their health care, they think about Group Health Cooperative and specifically their primary care team as being the home base and the, the one stop that they can go to for any questions or any issues that come up. And we're really proud of that because I think it really creates a lot of efficiency and it takes a lot of the worry and a lot of the questions out of healthcare. So, Mark, unfortunately, we are still living through this pandemic and there were so many scary and troubling aspects to COVID-19 so far. But one that took me a little bit by surprise was the struggle that we saw so many physician group practices, especially primary care physicians, struggle financially right out of the gate with this crisis. And was that the case for you as well? We're very lucky that we did not have those financial struggles the way that other groups have. And that comes down to the fact that we are both an insurance company and a delivery system. And so our revenue comes in through insurance premiums. It doesn't come in through seeing patients on a visit-by-visit basis. And so where other groups really struggled when everything had to shut down, we still had a revenue stream coming in. And also, uh, we switched very, very quickly from in-person visits to virtual visits and phone visits. And we were able to continue to take care of patients in the way that they needed without having to see them face-to-face. And that was really critical early on in the COVID-19 crisis. It was a very scary time. We didn't know quite how bad this would get. And people were afraid to leave their homes. They were certainly afraid to come into clinics where other sick people may have been seen. But at the same point, they still have diabetes and they still have COPD and congestive heart failure. They need to be seen and they need to have appropriate medical treatment. And so the fact that we did not need to have in-person visits in order to stay healthy as an organization and not have financial stress was a wonderful thing. And we transitioned very, very quickly to providing care through non-traditional means so that patients could stay home when that was appropriate and still get the critical health care, for, especially for chronic diseases that they really needed. I want to come to chronic diseases because that's so important. But just to stick with this for one more minute, Mark, if I understand correctly, 
your physicians are salaried. They're not paid by volume of care. Is that correct? That is correct. And as a family physician myself, I, I would tell you I've had experience in two different settings. One that was very much based in volume and group health cooperative, where all the providers are salaried. And in my last clinic system, the push was to see as many patients in a day as you possibly could because that increased revenue for the clinic and for the system. And it also bolstered your paycheck. And so there was an incentive to put in people over your lunch hour or double or triple book patients. And the visits often felt very, very rushed to me. At Group Health Cooperative, we have conversations with our providers about how many patients they should be seeing in a day. But the conversation is very different. Because we're not generating revenue off of those visits, we don't have the pressure to see more and more patients. Instead, what we talk about with our providers is, how many patients do you want to see in a day so that you feel like enough of your patients are getting the care that they need, balanced against having enough time with each of the patients so that they get the care that they need when they're in there? And so the conversation is very, very different. I have to tell you, my first memory of Group Health Cooperative coming in and realizing that my workday was going to be structured incredibly differently, it made me a fan of the, the system just from day one. That's terrific. You brought up a number of chronic conditions, and I would love for you to just stick with one of those examples. And now as a physician and all of your experience, when you think about patients with one or more chronic conditions that need to be managed, and you think about the future of primary care, what sort of a vision do you have, especially for those patients? Where do you want the country to go? I think healthcare has to put the patient in the driver's seat rather than the provider or the system. We are still requiring people to come in to the doctor or into the clinic on the terms set by the clinic or by the doctor. We're not truly doing healthcare in a patient-driven way. And patients have a lot of places where they would like to be able to connect with care, but the possibilities are not there because we have not built a system that really serves the, the customer first. And so I think that one of the things that really has to happen is the customer voice needs to be stronger. And, and frankly, the healthcare system has to respond to the customer voice much more quickly than we have done in the past. We're still seeing patients on our terms, not their terms. And I can't think of any other service industry where that's the case. Mm -hmm. It's so true. And so let's just say maybe diabetes. You could almost say it's rampant in this country. And it takes such an enormous toll on patients and cost to the system. So the kind of primary care model that you're talking about, you've referred to it as being someone's medical home and the patient is in the driver's seat and there's telemedicine. What does it look like for that diabetic to have that type of primary care? Well, there are a number of things that go into it, all of which I'm really, really proud of. One of the things that we did over a decade ago is we built truly multidisciplinary teams. And so we moved away from the model where the provider was the bottleneck and everything that happened for a patient had to go through the provider. Now, the provider is a critical part of that. But I would also say, you know, the nursing staff and the respiratory therapist and 
you know, the physician assistant, all of those people are equally important, pharmacist as well. And so we took a step back and said, how can we get rid of that bottleneck? And one of the things that we decided to do is we would have a quarterback for each one of our care teams. And providers were really excited about that. And of course, all of us providers thought we were going to be the quarterback. And we said to them, no, you're not the quarterback. You're always in a room seeing a patient or you're on the phone or you're charting or answering something through my chart. The real quarterback is the RN who's taking the phone calls, who is able to go up and down the hall, who's able to connect people to care. The RN will know when to come and get you, but you can't be calling the plays if you're always in a provider room or in a a clinic room. That was a really, really critical moment for us because we started to realize that the team approach meant sharing the load and also the responsibility across people and matching up their backgrounds and their skills and their knowledge with what the patient needed. So interesting. So in this team-based approach, the patient almost has more experts at their disposal. That's, That's absolutely right. And it comes down to they have many, many options for people they can talk to. One example that goes along with that is we made the decision to hire pharmacists and put them in clinics on care teams as well. As good as providers are at understanding medications, interactions, and side effects, we're not nearly as good as pharmacists who spend their whole career focused on this very, very important part of therapy. And so for those complex patients or those people that were experiencing side effects and weren't quite sure what to do, we wanted pharmacists to be available. And when you have those ingredients in place, Mark, from the C-suite perspective, is it worth it? Oh, it's, it's absolutely worth it. It's worth it not only because our patient population is under better control than many of the benchmarks that we have available to us. So we're doing a better job for patients. We're reducing ER visits and hospitalizations. We're meeting quality metrics that are established to show control of chronic health conditions. But one of the other parts of this that was really wonderful to understand is that our teams are happier doing their jobs. And at a time when healthcare is incredibly stressful and there is so much burnout and people leaving it because they just can't handle it, you want people to feel like they're making a difference and they're doing it in a setting that really fills them up rather than empties them out. And you've already mentioned pharmacists and integrating pharmacy into your team-based approach. But I think it's probably important that we also talk a little bit about behavioral health. And if I'm not mistaken, that is also integrated into your primary care model. It is. And it's actually one of the things we're most proud of. I was chief medical officer at the time. And I remember our director of behavioral health at that time walked into my office and didn't even ask permission, said, I was just at a conference and I heard about this model that had been done on a small scale and we're going to roll it out here across the system. And he described to me what it was and he did ask permission, but his his basic thing was, I have the staff to do this or don't have to add any more cost. I have the staff to start a very small pilot and we're going to plan it as quickly as we can and just get it going and work the kinks out. And it actually started on my care team. And I can remember coming out of clinic rooms and seeing there's a behavioral health person with a wide open schedule sitting at the nurse's station waiting to see patients. 
and they had no one scheduled on, on their particular provider schedule. But the idea was if we were in a primary care visit and a behavioral health concern came up, we had a professional who could come in and see them right then, which was so much better than what we used to do, which was, oh, uh, you have depression, anxiety, OCD, substance abuse issues. Here are things I can do for you medically. You should really follow up with behavioral health. It's three to six weeks wait. What I could do then is do the things that I could do and say, oh, and by the way, a therapist will come in and meet with you right now if you have the time. And what was really amazing about that is, number one, as you can imagine, patient satisfaction went way up, but our hospitalizations for behavioral health diagnoses plummeted after that. We started the small pilot. Over the next year, we were able to roll it out all the way across our clinics. And it's still now a very fundamental way of of how we help people with behavioral health issues in a primary care setting. Well, and clearly the, the, the terrific news out of that is patients that are getting the help they need immediately. But I am also struck by, and again, this is more of your CEO hat, but when you see hospitalizations, I think your word was plummet, that's savings, correct? Yes. It's not only savings, but it also represents the fact that patients have better and better outcomes. And admission to the hospital for a behavioral health concern is something that needs to happen when it's appropriate. And there are many people who, who still will need that. The thing that we wanted to address, though, were people that didn't get the behavioral health intervention at the time that could have halted that march toward something spinning out of control. That's, I think, one of the real failings of our system as it is today. We have so many high-cost interventions that could have been dealt with in a very low-cost, patient-centered way months or weeks earlier. So they end up in the ER, they end up in the hospital. We can do better than that. Well, that's true. And so as you think toward the future of primary care, whether it's for Group Health Cooperative or even, I'd love your thoughts, more broadly for the United States, because unfortunately, I think we've all just gotten a real wake-up call when it comes to primary care in this country. When you start to imagine and reimagine that future, you've touched on a number of different elements. Are there other things that you're excited about on the horizon? One of the most exciting things that I've heard about in the last couple of years is the fact that Kaiser Permanente, which is a highly, highly respected organization that is also built on primary care, has opened up a medical school that is really focused on primary care. When I went through medical school, I was later in life, but I was really struck by the fact that all of the instructors really pushed the specialties as being the way to go. And in fact, as a quick story, I remember graduating or or being ready to graduate, and one of the attendings in a specialty department pulled me aside and said, you know, have you thought about coming into my particular specialty? And I said, no, actually, family medicine is what I've decided on. And his response was, I had higher expectations for you. Wow. So that is what is often taught in medical school about primary care. What's not taught as well is how intensely rewarding being a primary care provider can be because you build a long-term relationship. People identify you as that's my doctor or that is my provider. And that is the person who can answer my questions whenever I have them. And 
we don't talk enough about that. We don't talk also about the fact that it's always changing. A primary care provider can take care of about 80% of the visits that happen within a system. The specialists are incredibly critical as well, and they want to be part of that team as well. But what we're not doing right now is putting enough emphasis on primary care as really the foundation for great medical care. So the fact that an organization with the stature and excellence of Kaiser would say, we're going to start an educational system that focuses on primary care for the future, that's really exciting to me. You've talked a lot about the team-based approach, multidisciplinary to begin with, including players such as pharmacists, behavioral health, plenty of RNs, etc. You've mentioned telehealth, and especially in the COVID crisis, the tool that that has become. You talked about salaried physicians so that your incentives are not to drive volume. We've touched on educating a healthcare workforce. These to me are sounding like really great elements for a bright future for primary care. Anything else in that future that you'd really like to see? I would like to see care delivered outside of clinics more often. And this is one place where I think Group Health Cooperative has not done as well as we could have done. As good as we are, we still, for face-to-face visits, essentially require people to come to our clinics. And uh, the clinics are not always accessible by bus as, as easily as they need to be. And the hours are essentially working hours during the day. We have introduced many, many years ago, one or two late nights where we see patients till 7 or 7.30. And those are very, very popular. But essentially what we're saying to patients is, it's really important for you to come see me, but you have to come see me on my schedule when I can fit you in. We've done a couple things to, to fix that, but I think there's much more to do. One of the things that we've done to fix that is we have what's called coordinated access. And so we work through our backlog so you don't have to wait three to six weeks to see your physician. Our standard is if you have a problem-focused or a short visit that you need, typically 15 or 20-minute visit, our standard is you can get in with your provider today or tomorrow or your care team if your provider is not in. So you can see somebody who knows you today or tomorrow. You don't have to go to urgent care or the emergency room for care today. If you need a longer visit, let's say a physical exam, a standard in the industry is three to six months. For us, it's less than a week. And so people can get in when they need to. And I think that's really critical. That's seeing people on their terms, not my terms. But what we haven't done as well as at is looking at alternative ways to bring care to people where they are. Always requiring people to come into your clinic, I think, is a problem. There are times where it's very appropriate, but there are also times where things like virtual visits, which we're doing, or phone visits, which we're also doing, or asynchronous email-type visits are used. And because we're not paid on a per-visit basis, we've been very quick to embrace those technologies because our revenue is not tied to whether or not we use them. The thing that we haven't done as well is, you know, essentially say, I'm going to come to your home at a time that's convenient for you. And, you know, your child has a sore elbow there in school until a certain time and you can't get here by the time our clinic closes. I should be stopping by to see the elbow on the way home, providing the care at a time that is most convenient for the patient. 
That is so exciting that you have that vision. I just want to say this has been a terrific socially distant interview. I want to make certain that our our listeners all know that here in Madison, we are practicing safe protocols, but a great conversation with Dr. Marcuth. Thank you. Thank you, Cece. And we'll be back with more of ACHP's Healthy Dialogue after a quick message from our sponsor. Support for a healthy dialogue comes from FoodSmart by Zapongo. FoodSmart helps remote workers by providing personalized telenutrition for your members through its national network of registered dietitians. FoodSmart dietitians help identify barriers to eating healthy while working from home and create a nutrition plan to address these barriers. Members can easily create a digital grocery list and order online via their favorite stores or restaurants or get a daily recipe recommendation based on food on hand. Through FoodSmart, you can also provide healthy food perks to remote workers and subsidies to lower-income employees to help them through these challenging times. To learn more about how you can help your remote workers eat healthy, visit www.foodsmart.com. You know, one of the most important aspects of primary care is ensuring access. And during the pandemic, telehealth has been the point of access for millions of Americans. So I thought it might be nice to hear a little from ACHP's resident telehealth guru, Ginny Whitman, about how telehealth is supporting primary care and what we can do to protect this vital tool. Ginny, in the course of the COVID-19 pandemic, we have really seen telehealth usage surge. In fact, we have seen more growth over the past half year than we saw in the previous decade. What would you say is the single most important thing that telehealth has shown us? So I think one of the really unexpected things that we've seen, it has actually wound up building and strengthening relationships between patients and their providers. And this has really enabled an easier way for patients and doctors to communicate with one another. And it's just overall really almost humanizing and intimate in a way that I don't think people were expecting with telehealth. I think the perception prior to the public health emergency was that telehealth was a cold and awkward way to interact. (laughs) That is such a fascinating insight, Jenny, and I've never stopped to think about it. But even in my own experience, and, you know, I've got a terrific primary care doctor and I'll go and see her in person and we connect for sure. But there's always, you know, I'm looking around the office and she's typing maybe something into the computer or looking at this or that. And you're right, because in that little video screen it shrinks your world and it it becomes this intimate experience. Yeah, exactly. It really forces you to focus on the interaction between you and another person on the video, whether or not it's your doctor, a specialist, a nurse, whoever it is. And they get to see intimate details of your life, like your home, your family, your pets, what's in your refrigerator. That's right. And Dr. Perotti on one of our earlier Healthy Dialogue interviews talked 
talked about that and being able to kind of see people in their environment. So if we pivot Ginny to primary care, which is so foundational, how might telehealth be able to improve access to primary care? So I think one of the wonderful things about telehealth is that it serves as this virtual front door to care delivery. And it's a virtual front door that is easy to use and easy for patients to incorporate in their daily lives. And I think that convenience is really the key to getting people engaged in their primary and preventative care. People will go to the doctor when there's something seriously wrong, but we want people to come to the doctor before there's something seriously wrong and and take those necessary annual visits seriously. But they're not going to do that if they have to take three hours out of their day to drive to the doctor's office. But, you know, Jenny, listening to you and thinking about access, I'm also just thinking of so many underserved populations where going to the doctor isn't even just getting in your car and driving. It might be a couple of bus rides. It might be you lose pay because you have an hourly wage job. Absolutely. And I think it also extends to patients who have certain restrictions mobility-wise or family support-wise that they need somebody to go to the doctor's office with them. And so that requires an extra level of personal coordination in order to just receive primary care services in person. So Jenny Whitman, here is your opportunity to jump up on your telehealth soapbox and give us your best take on what it is going to take to make telehealth a tool that is permanently available to all Americans. The first I would say is making sure that patients can receive telehealth services of any kind from their home. Prior to the public health emergency, flexibilities granted by CMS, HHS, and the White House, this was not always the case. And so we really need to make sure that those are maintained past the public health emergency. You then have to talk about the payment side of this, right? We can't just add in a whole new branch of care and all the added costs. We have to do this in a smart way that focuses on healthy long-term outcomes. So really figuring out a smart way that we pay for telehealth in a sustainable way is going to be a key conversation that we need to have. The last thing I think is really more of an industry question, and that's really going back to what I was saying earlier, which is that these tools need to be accessible. Not just do patients physically have the telehealth tools and platforms, but are they easy to use? Are they consumer friendly? I have to say, this was a terrific, healthy dialogue with our telehealth guru. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you, Cece, for having me. Before we go any further, Cece needs a minute. discussed, one of the obvious barriers to primary care and the development of a lasting, trusting relationship between patients and physicians is simply coverage. Those without health insurance tend to bypass preventive visits and annual exams. They opt instead for urgent care or emergency rooms when they have an acute episode. At the height of the COVID-19 outbreak, up to 30 million Americans 
were without jobs, which meant many became uninsured. So here's the question. Why didn't we open a national special enrollment period for people to sign up during the worst public health crisis in a century? We've done it before, most recently during the hurricane disasters in 2017 and 2019. Some states did it and saw great adoption. As of the end of August, 271,000 Californians had gained coverage through a special enrollment period. And that success keeps repeating itself across the country in states that operate their own exchanges. But on the federal level, policymakers passed on several opportunities to ensure everyone in the country has access to coverage and care. No special enrollment period. No financial support for laid-off workers purchasing COBRA coverage. No premium grace period protections. And not enough help to states as they saw their Medicaid rolls swell. Look, I'm not picky. Any of these pieces of the coverage puzzle would have been welcome developments. Sadly, guaranteeing coverage will have to wait for another day. Thanks for joining us for this week's Healthy Dialogue. Next week, we'll be taking a look at what happens when you put some of the solutions we've been discussing into practice. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Healthy Dialogue. Learn more about the Alliance of Community Health Plans at echp.org and click the Add to Contacts button to connect directly with our team. We hope you'll also find us on Twitter at underscore ACHP and on LinkedIn. And if you liked today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Reviews help new listeners find our podcast and hopefully spur more healthy dialogue out there.